0: Yesterday, listener Samantha wrote into the podcast and she said, she asked me, in my internship site, I have a majority of male clients and I am looking for a little help in navigating the therapeutic relationship as a woman with male clients. Yesterday, I, I said that I would talk about it today and at first I thought I was just going to respond to it you know, quickly and briefly in a way that I will often do. But since right now I'm between terms, I have a little extra time, so I decided to delve into into the literature a little bit, and I went down a rabbit hole, and I am now emerging after contemplating my work with male clients and after reading a lot of the literature, I decided to actually write a paper on the topic and present a sort of rough draft to you here. So the first thing that I have to say is actually backing up a little bit. The first thing I have to say is that we have more patrons to the podcast. We now have eight patrons to the podcast. It is day five of the uh, pledge drive for people to come for people to become patrons on our Patreon page please go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. Again, we have eight. Listener Mike, listener Zoe, again, Slobodan, Ryan, Lyndon, Thomas, Anita, and Scott are all signed up as patrons. And as I said before, if you become a patron, that will get you certain benefits. I'm thinking about maybe having half the episodes available to only patrons or uh, only the beginning of the episodes to non-patrons and patrons get the full episode. I don't know. Some kind of benefit because what I want to do again is create a community and this seems like a really good way to do it. Uh, a way for those people that are most invested to uh, get the most out of the community. Anyway, also, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your loyal host, Dr. Kirk Conda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. Okay, so let's get into it, shall we? All right, so the first thing I want to say is the title of this podcast. I'm going to call it 10 Tips on How to Counsel Men. So pretty uh, easy-to-understand title to this podcast and the paper I'm writing. I'm going to eventually post this paper, I think, on, my pod- on the podcast uh, website, psychologyinseattle.com. But I might, I might also submit it to publication. I'm not sure. Anyway, first thing I want to say is that therapists are generally untrained when it comes to treating men in therapy. So listener Samantha is not alone in feeling a little insecure about her, uh, her skills regarding working with male clients. Research has found that therapists are undertrained regarding the psychology of men and how to help them. In spite of many faculty members and many students saying that the psychology of men is an important area of research and an important area of training. For example, there's been research... Uh, interviewing male therapists, male, male therapists in training across the United States regarding their experience of gender training and found that the male therapists in training, they, they were saying that when they're in graduate school, they find that they're often silenced in discussions in class because most graduate programs are dominated by females, like some, you know, something like 80%-ish uh, of the students are female. And so, you know, not that that means necessarily that men are going to be silenced, but, you know, in in the liberal world, it's much easier for us to get behind statements of feminism and anti-male privilege anti-white male privilege, it's much easier for us to get behind those kinds of statements in in liberal institutions than it is for us to defend men, so to speak. And so I don't think our society has matured quite yet um, around this issue. And so I think in the future, we'll have a more balanced way of discussing these sorts of things. And, you know, we'll have the ability to discuss both uh, female oppression issues and male issues, whether or not we call that oppression of men or stereotyping of men or just harming men because they're men. (laughs) I mean, whatever we call it, uh, you know, I think uh, both should be discussed. Also, it should be noted that the binary between men and women is often a problem. You know, there's not, some people don't identify as men or women, so you know, we should just discuss that as well. Also, the research by Taylor in 2006 found that the topic of gender in graduate school is often very female-centric. You know, meaning that they t- they tend to talk mainly about the female experience. When the topic of gender is brought up, they you know these men were saying, "Well, when gender is brought up, basically we're just talking about female experience, which is great, but also why aren't we talking about men?" Um, they also, in the study, found that the male therapists in training were saying that men are often pathologized, that male aspects or masculinity or qualities of quote unquote men are often seen as a pathology and destructive and never positive. And they also found that they weren't being trained on how to treat men. And uh, that was a problem. I would say this is consistent with my experience in graduate training, As a male student myself, I found it difficult to discuss my experience as a man, so given my style of relating, given my style as a student, I just chose to avoid the topic altogether, which is very wimpy of me, but um, that's what I decided to do. Now, at this point in the podcast, I feel it necessary to disclose that I am a lifelong devoted feminist. If anyone's listened to the podcast, they know this about me. If you haven't, I feel like I need to tell you. Because anytime I hear pro-male discussions, discussions, any discussions or whenever I read anything that's that's talking about pro-male sorts of messages, I often later realize that the presenter or writer is actually anti-feminist. You know, and I find that to be this sort of dichotomy on the internet anyway. It's like you're either a feminist and which, you know, is sometimes associated with hating men, even though true feminism has nothing to do with hating men, but it often is sort of portrayed that way. Or you're a pro-male person in which you believe in uh, anti-feminist notions such as there is no such thing as the glass ceiling and... Uh, that women are the ones that have privilege in our society and all that crap. And and again, if you've listened to my podcast before, you know that I am a staunch feminist and often fight on the internet with anti-feminists, and I can be quite riled up by them. <laughs> so I just want to disclose that. Um, I don't know how to prove the fact that I'm a feminist, but a, a, a badge of honor that I... Where proudly is that anti-feminist trolls often attack me on the Internet? So that should say something, right? So moving on. So getting back to the topic of men in therapy and, you know, the 10 ways of how to help men in therapy, uh, there's a few things we have to go over, I think, first just to establish... Um, some other research. It's common knowledge that men seek help less than women. Across all ages, nationalities, and ethnicities, and races, men are less likely to seek therapy than women. So that's just, you know, it's just a fact. And, you know, we speculate as to why, which I'll get into later. Uh, More specifically, research has found that 17% of women in the United States have sought therapy in the last year, while only 10% of of men have sought therapy in the last year year so seventeen percent of women have have been in therapy in the last year while only ten percent of men have been in therapy in the last year you know why is that well I imagine some people will say well it 's because women have more problems that 's why they go to therapy more men don 't have problems men don 't complain they they move on in life you know they don't they don 't need therapy the way that women do well in in contrast to this rather offensive common understanding, there's a large body of evidence that men suffer from an equal rate, if not a greater rate, of mental and emotional problems. Let me just reiterate that to those people out there that might troll me on the internet. <laughs> research is found, empirical research, in which they actually study actual human beings rather than just anecdotal information. When they actually study human beings, men suffer from an equal amount of emotional and mental problems, if not more. Now, I would speculate the, that they suffer potentially from more problems, probably because they're they're oppressed in the way that they're not allowed to seek help. They're told that seeking therapy is weak and men should never be weak, and therefore men will suffer a lot longer. You know, imagine if we told men that they shouldn't go to the dentist, that going to the dentist was weak. Well, that's, you know, that's not really in our society, I don't think, anyway. But uh, imagine if we did that. Well, you would imagine you would see more cavities and more problems with one's teeth in the male population as opposed to the female population, right? Well, the same goes for mental health. Humans have problems. Humans have emotional problems. And if you take one group and say it's unmanly to go to therapy and prevent them from going to therapy, then it's going to make their problems worse. So anyway, all right. So why do, why do men avoid getting help? Well, as I was getting to, society, you know, tells them this. But um, there's also a number of other sociocultural values and beliefs that contribute to this. Um, and I could go on and on and I could talk about, you know, the long history of our country and our society. But in general, and to put it simply, boys and men are socialized to be rigidly autonomous, competence-oriented, Tough, confident, self-reliant, action-oriented, self-regulated, unexpressive, achievement-oriented, status-oriented, aggressive, independent, daring, and potentially violent. So these are the, the qualities. Again, I'm just going to say them again because a, a lot of them really pertain to the issue at hand here. So in general, uh, men are socialized to be rigidly autonomous, competence-oriented, they're, they're socialized to be tough confident, self-reliant, action-oriented, self-regulated, unexpressive, achievement-oriented, status-oriented, aggressive, independent, daring, and violent. Now, several of these fly in the face of actually going to therapy, right? Um, And, you know, just going into my own life, I can think of countless examples of how I was socialized to be this way. You know, I, I played a lot of sports growing up, and whenever we were injured... Uh, The coaches and society, and I mean society meaning the parents and the kids around me, would would say, you know, be a man, walk it off, don't cry. Uh, I learned very, no one ever told me as a child that it was wrong to cry, but I learned that it was wrong for boys to cry. And I eliminated my crying behavior. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before where in the fifth or sixth grade, I learned how to suppress crying. And every time I had the urge to cry, I would get angry. And as a result, I didn't shed a tear for 10 years. (laughs) I mean, maybe one or two tears uh, in very extreme circumstances. But I, you know, throughout my adolescence and into my young adulthood, I never cried. Well, no one explicitly told me that I couldn't cry. In fact, people explicitly told me that it was okay to cry. I remember watching Free to Be You and Me when I was a kid, and there was Mean Joe Green, I think it was, you know, singing that song. It's all right to cry. Google it. It's a it's a wonderful. Michael Jackson's in, in that movie. But anyway, um, you know, I was told it was okay to cry. And yet I, even though I was a confident kid and, you know, emotionally balanced, I think, for the most part, you know, on the average, I, I was really insecure about crying and I suppressed it. You know, and I can think of countless examples of of how I uh, enacted these kinds of messages towards boys. You know, if I'm if I'm roughhousing with some kids and a boy gets hurt, you know, I'll say things like, "Oh, you you can take it. You're a man. You know, you you're a you're a big man. You can do it. You can do it." You know, it, it's it's a very it's it it's not it's not malevolent. You know, it's not like I'm trying to uh, shame the child in terms of his emotional expressiveness, but but in essence, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm, I'm essentially saying being a man means not expressing any pain. Uh, it means not asking for help. It means being able to take it like a man. And these messages are strong and they, they continue. They're, they're around today in full, full force. Uh, so, so moving on here. So that's a reason, you know, these are reasons why men don't go to therapy. Um, To be more specific, research has found that men avoid counseling because it is associated with the the opposite of the masculine ideal. Things like weakness dependency, being reliant on others, being emotionally vulnerable, in need of help, empathic toward the self, having empathy toward the self, being unsure and being expressive with one's emotions. These are all things that are associated with femininity and therefore unmasculine. And so men will avoid, they'll avoid counseling because being dependent and reliant on others is associated with women and men have been taught to avoid femininity like the plague, uh, or else you'll be labeled a faggot and get, you know, beat up after school. And it's not just counseling that is affected by this cultural norm. Since men are reluctant to seek help when experiencing distress, they are more likely to experience isolation, which may result in greater mortality and a lower quality of life. Research has found this. So this, you know, not only makes someone not seek therapy, it not only makes their mental illness and their emotional problems stagnate and increase without any relief, but it also can result in greater stress, lower quality of life, and even greater mortality. You know, it's a well-known fact that men die sooner than women. Perhaps it's because of this, because men are denied the opportunity to seek emotional support from other people, and as a result, their stress mounts and they eventually die of a heart attack. It's at this point in the podcast that I feel compelled to point out that research on gender often finds that men and women are often much more similar than assumed or reported in in the literature. So, you know, as we talk about, you know, men and women, and we talk about research, you know, saying that men do this and women do that, understand that these are bell curves of distribution and that men and women are much more alike then they are different and so we just need to keep that in mind you know that be, you know for instance it's it's not as if women are told that therapy is wonderful you know men and women are both told that going to therapy is a sign of weakness and both men and women are told that being weak is bad and that being dependent on other people is bad but it's just that men are told that more so in general you know and this is also not to say that some men are told different messages that grow up in different cultural pockets and have different kinds of messaging in their families and in their neighborhoods. Maybe they're told that therapy is great, and so they grow up with a different attitude. So we're not talking about all men, and we're not talking about men and women being completely different from each other. For example, when I was 19, I sought therapy, even though I didn't really need it, and even though no one prompted me. Uh, I I was definitely a very socialized male in in our society, and I went to therapy. So you know I, I don't represent the generalization that uh, young men don't go to therapy because they're socialized not to. You know, so there, there's differences everywhere. You know. So we need to treat each male client as a unique individual. That's my belief anyway. A whole individual, uh, someone with a unique personality. And at the same time, be aware of the sociocultural and historical context in which that person exists. So treat them like an individual, but also understand that that individual exists within a context. And so you have to understand both of those things. Also, it should be pointed out that men are not just men. They also have an ethnicity, an age, a sexual orientation, etc. So, you know... We can't just say men as a group. You know, we have to acknowledge that uh, there's a diversity of diversities among men. All right, so let's get to the tips on how to treat men. So number one of the 10 tips on how to counsel men. The first thing is to address cultural countertransference. And let me explain. The, the first step for every psychotherapist is to begin the journey of self-awareness. This fundamental tenet of training, supervision, and self-supervision applies to the topic of treating male clients. We have all likely been traumatized in at least minor ways by our experiences involving gender. Us therapists have internalized many negative notions regarding gender. We have all been limited to the binary expectations of masculinity and femininity. We have all internalized the oppressive behaviors and messages in our culture, and we will never be without the mostly fixed biases that direct our perceptions and attitudes. We're all biased. Therefore, we must continually strive for self-awareness, awareness of our society, awareness of culture, awareness of history, awareness of politics, and be sensitive and empathic and compassionate for all persons. When I'm working with heterosexual couples, I occasionally and diligently ask myself, am I falling victim to a gender bias? Am I preferring the male perspective? These are just some of the questions, just some of the complicated and difficult questions that I have to ask myself, that I have to contemplate. And these questions can only be contemplated with a firm foundation of previous contemplation and discourse with others regarding culture and gender. So we must understand our cultural countertransference. We must understand our biases when it comes to gender. For example, a supervisee once told me that she could not work with male clients. She found her counter-transference to be overwhelming. We explored her reactivity and her past trauma. And we collaboratively concluded that she would refer all of her adult male clients to other therapists. However, we also enacted a plan to reduce her countertransferential reactions so she could have greater flexibility in her future career. With years of therapy, with years of trauma recovery and supervision and self-contemplation, she was eventually able to comfortably treat adult male clients. And today she continues to struggle occasionally with her reactivity, but we found it to be tolerable and manageable. Okay, so number one is cultural counter-transference. Be aware of it. Contemplate it. Strive to understand yourself regarding gender. The second, second tip on how to treat male clients effectively is to have compassion and patience. To me, the underlying foundation of all things is compassion. The underlying thing, the underlying thing in all things psychotherapy is compassion. With male clients, and frankly with all clients, we must find and express our compassion as therapists. If we cannot access compassion and empathy, therapy is likely to stagnate and feel icky for both therapist and client. If you are having difficulty accessing your compassion for a male client, remember that men have been socialized to deny their feelings, to not know their feelings, to be afraid of vulnerability, to appear strong, and possibly to be aggressive. So try to remember that. If you're struggling with a client that's exhibiting traditional masculinity and it feels like resistance to you, just remember that they've been socialized to be that way and that might help you to have compassion for it. So don't push too hard against that initially because they've been socialized to be that way. Now, it doesn't excuse it, so to speak, but it does put it in a cultural context. Another thing that you might want to do in a compassionate way is to commend boys and men for coming to therapy. You know, they, men and boys, when they come to therapy, in general, have to overcome more stigma in order to come to your office. And so one way to exhibit your compassion and patience is to commend them for even coming. Uh, again, you should commend anyone for coming, but maybe particularly boys and men. Also, it might help to emphasize your compassion and empathy with men in a particularly big way, if that makes any sense. You, you might want to really pour on the compassion for, for clients, for male clients initially to help them feel the benefits of healthy dependency on you. However, we need to be careful not to demean men since some men might feel as though we pity them or we look down on them with our compassion. And so this is, you know, part of the art of therapy. We need to balance these things out. Okay, so number 1 was cultural be aware of your cultural kind of transference regarding gender. Number 2 is to have a lot of compassion and patience for male clients. Number 3 is to normalize and maybe to point out the socialization that the client has incurred. So uh, often normalizing has a high therapeutic value regardless of of what we're talking about. And along these lines, it might help to explain or allude to the ways we have all been socialized. Uh, When you're treating men, it might help to explain the ways in which they've been socialized to be traditionally male, traditionally masculine. For example, if a man is having difficulty expressing his vulnerability to a spouse and instead he is being critical and hurtful, I've seen this countless times in my office, by the way. Then it might be helpful to normalize by saying, it seems easier for you to express anger. I'm guessing that's because us men have been socialized to deny or hide our vulnerability. But men are human too, and we all get hurt sometimes. So, you know, through that example, it's not a great example, but through that example with this fictional client, I'm I'm saying That it's normal for you to feel angry. It's normal for you to convert your vulnerability into anger. That's totally normal. I, I get it. And I've been there. And I've done that myself. But, you know, it's also normal for us to have vulnerability and for us to want to hide it, you know. And what you'll find in my experience is that since people generally want to be heard and generally want to express their emotions, when you open the door... In that compassionate way, while valuing where they're coming from, people will naturally gravitate towards expressing their vulnerability to you, even men. (laughs) Okay, so number four, assume that men are human. This sounds stupid, but just uh, bear with me for a second. Uh, I find myself telling my supervisees this sometimes. I find myself saying to, and to my clients sometimes too, I I often find myself saying, well, remember that they're human. meaning that they're vulnerable in a normal way meaning that they're not a robot and that if they're human they're just like you and they have all the same insecurities and all the same fears and all the same hurts and all the same sensitivities you know it it's helpful to assume that stoic men are suffering greatly on the inside and if you assume that you'll often be correct now sometimes you won't be i mean you know, sometimes men, stoic men in the end will say, no, I'm cool. You know, I'm just I've just really come to a really relaxed place emotionally in my life. And and uh, I'm, I, I almost never feel distress, stress and, and I'm cool. But often I find that stoic men, uh, they say that and they might even really believe it and they might even really halfway experience that. But deep down, they are suffering. Uh, perhaps even greater than you you would possibly imagine. And I know this sounds very cliche of a therapist to say, but but I've certainly seen that. I mean, think about it. You know, everyone has vulnerabilities and everyone has insecurities and everyone has little hurts and sensitivities. I mean, if it's one thing as I get older and start actually uh, entering different hierarchies, you know, it's like I'm the chair of my program now, you know, it's it's high up. And I'm just as insecure, and I feel just as stupid as I did when I was 17 or 10 or five. I've, you know, I feel just as I feel just as much of a fraud as I've ever felt. And you know, so that makes me realize that you know nobody is without those feelings. You know, Obama, uh, Trump. <laughs> All these people uh, are human beings and there's no way that they don't have insecurities. There's just no way, you know, and I know it's hard to imagine because we like to hold people up and say, no way that, you know, they don't have those feelings. They don't have the human feelings that I do. They're perfect or they're beyond that or or look how famous they are. Of course, they have enough validation. Well if you if you listen to enough interviews like on the you know the WTF podcast or something you realize that everyone suffers. And so assume so the number 4 tip here is to assume that men are human. Assume they have a gushy center. Number 5. And this is something that I often tell myself is to assume that men are lonely because they've been socialized to be stoic and distant and self-reliant and unemotional and and independent. That will create a very lonely existence. It will create an existence in which the, the man has a feeling and has a need for support, but feels he can't ask for it. And therefore, no one really knows what he's experiencing. And and therefore, he feels very lonely and very afraid. And so uh, assume that your male clients uh, are lonely. Now, again, going back to the bell curve thing. Women are absolutely lonely, too. I was just talking with a client yesterday about how lonely she felt. So it's not as if women don't experience loneliness. But but when you have a stoic male, uh, one one way you can sort of get in to his emotional material is by discussing discussing loneliness. I was told this in graduate school like 20 years ago. I, someone said, oh, you know, just assume that men are lonely. Or, I can't remember what exactly they said. And, and at the time, I thought, well, that sounds kind of silly. But... Whenever I'm, I, I reach a kind of dead end, uh, I'll start gravitating my language toward loneliness, and I find that men will respond to that, and it'll open them up. Okay, so again, number one, be in touch with your cultural countertransference, your biases, that sort of thing. Number two, have compassion and patience for men. Number three, normalize and point out socialization. Number four, assume they are human. Number five, assume they're lonely. And number six, allow men to be men. Allow the men to be men. Again, sounds really stupid, but work with me here. For men who adhere closely to traditional mainstream American male qualities, it might be helpful to allow men to remain within their idea of masculinity while also being therapeutic. This is complicated, so let me explain. Perhaps an example will help. Okay, so, uh, and as a caveat here, whenever I discuss clients, whenever I discuss, you know, client data, I, I always mask their identity so that the client wouldn't be able to recognize themselves if they heard this. Or I leave out so much that there's really no way you could identify the person. Okay, so having said that, once I found myself extremely frustrated with a male client. He was a contractor, and he was quite traditionally masculine. I was trying in vain to convince him to be less critical of his teenage son, but he was unconvinced. And I, through frustration, I gave into to my countertransference and became outwardly and overtly aggressive with him. We argued loudly for a very long time, and at the end of the session, I figured he would terminate therapy, but instead he scheduled another appointment, and after this aggressive, overt session, he opened up, which seemed weird to me. He became much more vulnerable, and in every session, he would cry. And he would say jokingly, you always do this to me. (laughs) But halfway through the session, we'd get to some kind of soft point, you know, in him. And he'd start crying and he'd say, you always do this to me. So why was our yelling match so helpful for him? Well, perhaps it's because I stopped approaching him softly and diplomatically, which are both feminine qualities, and instead came at him in a straightforward, masculine, aggressive manner. I approached him on his terms as a traditional male, and maybe that's what he needed. Now, I'm not recommending that all therapists should yell at their resistant male clients. <laughs> Rather, I'm suggesting that if you are having difficulty connecting with a male client, you might consider approaching him with masculine energy and mannerisms. Maybe he wants to joke around more. Maybe he wants direct communication. Maybe he wants to be more aggressive. Maybe he wants more aggressive you know, energy in the room. These are questions worth contemplating when struggling with resistant male clients. Along these lines, be aware of your office decor and the way that you dress. As with all clients, we should always be aware of the way clients feel in our offices. Traditional men might be put off by particularly feminine office decor. This is this is not to say that therapists should not be allowed to decorate their offices in whatever way they want, but it's worth considering. All right, number 7. Tip number 7. Assume you can help. Getting back to the original question from the podcast listener, uh, Samantha, that that, uh, initiated the writing of this paper and of this podcast. I suspect she believes that, that she's at a disadvantage with men because she is a woman. I have found this to be a common issue among novice female therapists. And the reverse is true for male therapists with female clients. You know, male male therapists will come to me and say, how can I treat a female? I don't, I don't know what it's like to be female. But take it from me, there's no compelling reason to believe that female therapists cannot help male clients just as well as male therapists can. After all, according to the research that I was discussing earlier, men and women are much more alike than different. So gender difference will not likely interfere with compassion and understanding. So assume you can help. It might just take a little bit more time to understand men if you're a woman. Which brings me to tip number eight, prove your worth. So if you're working with a traditionally masculine client, it might help to prove your worth early by highlighting your qualifications or showcasing your expertise. Traditional males might be wary of a female therapist who quote unquote just listens. So, uh, so try to provide some concrete guidance early. And again, try to establish your authority and, and that you know what you're doing. But again, I hesitate to generalize since uh, not all men are like this. But, uh, but I found this to be helpful with some men, they, they, uh, with some men, not all men, and certainly some women. They are looking for some concrete uh, skill building <laughs> or, you know, some, some very uh, clear guidance as to what therapy is. Some people, particularly traditional masculine males, they don't want to come in and just have it be a free-for-all, free associative exploration. Uh, they, they want results. And so you might have to emphasize that. And for you novice therapists out there, you might really struggle with that because you haven't developed that repertoire and that way of speaking that way. But as you gain experience, you'll be able to do it more. And what I tell my supervisees is um, have experienced therapists role play it for you. Get get a feel for that language. You know, have them say, "Can you role play how you would justify your expertise to a client if they questioned you?" You know, you know, say a, say a client said, "You look young." You know, how are you supposed to help me? You know, I'm a man. You're a woman. I don't understand. I don't understand how this is going to work. Have the experienced therapist go through their thing and 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 absorb that language. And, and then step two is practice it in the mirror because practice makes perfect. And especially in the first session, you're kind of on stage and you can't just be bumbling and stumbling through your various different sentences. You need to be able to have them come out of you in a fairly competent way. Otherwise, your clients might think you're an idiot. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that's just a little tip there. All right. Tip number nine, don't assume stoicism means unemotional. So assume that traditional masculine men are likely to resort to stoicism when they feel afraid and hurt. This can easily be mistaken for for disinterest or being unemotional. But if you assume that he is hiding his fear and vulnerability, you are likely to gravitate toward that emotional material and therefore invite him to express and work through those emotions. Once I was working with a hetero couple for years and the husband reporting feeling almost no emotion. Of course, since the system sought homeostasis and balance, the wife expressed enough emotion for the two of them. Over time uh, over months and years of stoic behavior and therapy, I began to believe that he was mellow and relaxed and even keeled. You know, I thought, you know, maybe he doesn't have any emotions on the inside. Maybe he's just super mellow. But in the back of my mind, I knew that he his childhood was difficult. And I knew that his stoicism was just a defense that he used to protect himself from his own vul- vulnerability. Because as a child, he learned that he couldn't ask for help. That he that his, if he asked for help, he wouldn't get it. So he learned to suppress that. So after contemplating my counter-transference, I once again attempted to focus on his vulnerability. And I felt... The three of us, you know, him and his wife and me, gravitating towards his loneliness and pain as I focused on it. It took several weeks, but he eventually overcame barriers and accessed his vulnerability. He was able to express his dependency and uncertainty, which allowed his wife to understand him better and have more compassion for him, and for him to have greater flexibility in his emotional expressiveness, and therefore a greater well-being for him. All right, tip number 10. Remember that traditional masculinity is not all negative. This is an important thing to remember. There are many positive aspects to masculinity. Now, of course, we need to be careful when discussing this because we do not want to uphold destructive aspects of the status quo, and we need to be very careful not to reinforce male privilege and destructive stereotyping. With that in mind, I consider the concept of, quote-unquote, positive masculinity helpful when treating men in therapy. The The positive masculinity movement is an attempt to move away from seeing masculine qualities as solely destructive to identifying and encouraging helpful traditional masculine qualities. So think of it this way. Sometimes it is helpful to tell women clients to get in touch with their inner female power, right? Their maternal nature or their inner goddess, you know? Well, it's similar for men. You can help men by inspiring them to get in touch with and manifest positive aspects of their masculinity, such as courage or strength or chivalry. Now, again, this is not to say that women do not have integrity or honor or chivalry, you know, and certainly chivalry is associated with all sorts of evil things. Um, As a feminist, I can absolutely attest to that. But the, the the whole point here is that when we're working with people, we don't have time to break down society and to change society and our culture. We're not we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not going to change our society in our lifetime. It'll it'll change slowly over time and we should absolutely, you know, do our part. But masculinity and femininity are here to stay and we have to work with it. And when you're in session with a client, you're not going to be able to get rid of their sociocultural understanding and their internalized gender roles and, you know, internalized masculinity. You're not going to be able to erase that from them. So you might as well use it to your advantage, right? Move with the resistance, as they say. I often use the analogy of judo. You know, if you're familiar with judo, the basic tenet from what I understand is, you know, someone comes at you, and instead of resisting and meeting them with force, you move with their force. So they come at you, and then you move to the side, and you you push them and they can, cont- in the direction they're already heading, sort of towards you, and they move past you and fall down. <laughs> it's quite humiliating <laughs> to the perpetrator. Uh, and if you've seen Karate Kid, uh, the first one, you'll, you'll know how uh, humiliating it is to Kublai Kai. Um, but anyway, uh, when you have masculinity uh, presenting problems in your therapy office, perhaps using masculinity to your advantage might help. And there are many, many positive aspects to masculinity, and we've really lost sight of that. I mean, when I hear the word masculinity, that word in the circles that I run in, it is always associated with something negative. It's always associated with aggressiveness and being a douchebag (laughs) and uh, being controlling and privileged and dominant, you know, and and it's true; those are masculine qualities, and men have been socialized to be that way. And men, in general, are that way. But there's also a lot of wonderful things associated with masculinity and and with playing our gender. You know, things like like I said, courage, being courageous, being being generous. Um, you know, it's it's uh, men have been socialized to provide for their families. Well, that's a, a form of generosity, right? Well, encourage that generosity. Uh, Now, don't have it be a rigid generosity like encouraging men to force their women to not have work so that they will be allowed to give to their, you know, wives. (laughs) You know, that's something quite different that we need to fight against. But if you can inspire a husband to give to his community somehow in a way that feels meaningful to him, then that's a wonderful thing, right? And if you need to language it as a masculine, uh, be a man and be generous sort of way, then go for it. You know, do what's helpful is what I always tell my supervisees and students and interns. I say, do what's helpful. Don't do what's appropriate (laughs) because what's often culturally appropriate is not helpful. So sometimes they are the same. Anyway, so those are the 10 tips. Let's review them. Ten tips to treating. What am I t- Ten tips on how to counsel men. How to therapize men. Number one: be aware of your cultural countertransference and your biases. Contemplate them. Strive for personal understanding. Number two: have compassion and patience for men. Slow down. Understand it takes time for men to adjust to therapy. Normalize and point out socialization. Normalize men's experience. Um, normalize how they have been socialized and help them understand that and normalize that they are having difficulty uh, accessing their vulnerability. It's okay that that's happening. Number four, assume that men are human. Assume that they have deep insecurity and deep sadness and deep grief and deep vulnerability and deep needs. Assume that they have that. Assume they have it in spades because they do. And when you assume that, you'll gravitate toward that emotional material. Assume they're lonely. Because again, when you socialize men to be independent, that basically breeds loneliness. Number six, allow men to be men. Speak their language. Let them be themselves. Don't try to change them into something else. Because that doesn't value who they are. Assume you can help. Number seven, assume that you can help. Just because you 're a young female does not mean you can't help a fifty five year old man It does not mean you can't help that person. You absolutely can there's no reason to believe you can't, but it does mean that you might have to understand men a little better, and it might mean that you have to uh, really struggle with your counter transference before you can truly uh, see the client before you and before you can have deep compassion for that person. Number eight. Attempt to prove your worth early for male clients, because if they're particularly traditionally masculine, they might disrespect you or lose respect for you if you don't establish that you know what you're doing. Number nine, don't assume stoicism means that the person is innately unemotional. Don't assume, don't, don't assume just because they're acting masculine that that means they have no emotions on the inside. That's kind of a repeat of what I was talking about before, but anyway. Bears repeating. Number 10. Remember that traditional masculinity is not negative. There are a lot of wonderful aspects of masculinity in the same way that there's a lot of wonderful wonderful aspects of femininity. Why would why would why would the word feminine in our therapy world be associated with all things good <laughs> and the word masculine be associated with all things bad? Well, it's because in the beginning, it was the opposite, or at least 50 years ago. And we decided that we had to counteract that by saying, well, look, look at all the wonderful things about femininity. There's all these wonderful things. And look over here. There's a lot of bad things about masculinity. We really need to acknowledge that there are bad things about masculinity. Well, because we're such simple, stupid people, we tend to not see the gray zone. <laughs> and We can only see black and white. And so I encourage us to see the the gray zone in which femininity and masculinity are both neither good nor bad. They just are what they are. And there are good and aspects to both, depending on the individual. So understand that that things like courage and and independence and self-reliance and being a tough guy, you know, in, in certain contexts, these are good qualities to have. And you can use them as a therapist to help clients. You can use those qualities. You can enhance those qualities in your clients for the good of their well-being. All right. Well, I thank listener Samantha for writing in that question. I hope that I answered it. Again, uh, go to patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. Even if you just become a patron for $1, um, no one's done the $1 option. It's all been 5 10 and 20 and up, and that sort of thing. And uh, so even if it's just a dollar, if you know, because because what I'm thinking is like, okay, we have, I think, seven or eight patrons so far from statistics, uh, there's somewhere between like. 10,000 or 100,000 of you, it's sort of hard to gauge these sorts of things. It's been estimated, a good estimate, a good conservative estimate is that there's 30,000 of you. (laughs) And if each one of you gave a dollar, that's $30,000 a month, right? So, you know, I can't, uh, you know, and if you did that, maybe we could all quit our day jobs and do this podcast (laughs) 24-7. And and have great content because we have all this time to dedicate it to it. So so that's the whole idea is that with more patrons means more time for us to dedicate to this. So again, go to patreon.com. You have to go to your computer. I realize that you might not be near the computer, so you have to actually have to go to the computer and please become a patron. And the sooner we get, you know, all the patrons that we're hoping to get, the sooner I'll shut up about it. How about that? <laughs> How about that for incentive? I'm sure some of you are getting really tired of it, but you know, what are you gonna do? All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me on this journey. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it, whether you're masculine or not, right?